um, um, I think the I think the oldest essay in that collection was written in like 1990, which is when I was making the first stab at Infinite Jest. There's a lot of addiction stuff in Infinite Jest, and it's it's odd. I mean, I went to a lot of open AA meetings, and I've read a lot of um, sort of addictionology books, and it does become a kind of model or lattice through which you end up seeing a lot of stuff, particularly um, particularly American stuff. Um, advertising is seduction and um, I mean the the ultimate inelastic demand uh, is an addict which is you know terrific for commercial interests um, I think um, I'm not sure about addiction so much um, I know I know that a lot of the, a lot of the essays ended up being about um, certain kinds of certain kinds of seduction um, and seduction can on one hand be a neat thing and can make us feel alive but on another hand seduction is literally you know promising more than you can deliver and there seems to me to be something particularly American about that experience um, it's also true that you know I'm, I'm not a journalist and um, a lot of these pieces came about because Harper's commissioned one thing and other magazine editors liked it and commissioned me to do other stuff and I don't think it's so I don't think it's all that surprising that a fair amount of the the sort of theory behind Infinite Jest comes out in the essays because I didn't really have any um, I didn't really have any idea how to write nonfiction. Um, I was basically walking around paying as close attention as I could and then trying to form it into something. Well, one of the things that interests me here is that it reminded me a good deal as I went along in it of James Thurber, and I thought the James Thurber technique of humor is to find a way for the person narrating the events to be exactly the wrong person to be participating in the events. In other words, the thing that the humorist essay must first do is disqualify himself. Uh -huh. At which point, having become Charlie Chaplin, everything that happens to him is hilarious. Interesting. It's I hadn't thought of it that way, and I don't know that much about Thurber. I know that um, particularly starting with about the third essay, the State Fair thing, there was a certain persona that I found to do these things. A great deal of it was that I was I was petrified because I feel like I know a certain amount about writing fiction, didn't know anything about writing nonfiction. I'm just now teaching a class at ISU in nonfiction and I'm realizing how illiterate in the genre I am. I hit on a tactic fairly early on of of simply being candid about that and actually developing developing a persona who was so who came came out in the essay and said, "I'm not a journalist. I'm petrified. the The terror is making me pay a whole lot of attention." And then there is, then it becomes, yeah, kind of lovable schmuck. Um, uh, one guy in New York kept asking if there, there, if if I'd gotten it from Woody <laughs> Allen, you uh -huh. know. And there is a kind of wooden. It's another reason why, like, I wanted to collect them all together in the book and then not do any more for a while because by the last one, I was finding that it was a, a particular kind of narrator. Yes, and yet. The reason I think of Thurber is um, that he's from the Midwest, Columbus, um, that he famously looks into a microscope in university days to examine his own eye, mm. and that... That's the stuff about Ohio State? Yes. Yeah, okay, I've, I've read some of that. Um, but there's the endearing tone of a man who in your case, will find himself in the Beautiful Legs contest. In Thurber's case is a man who by the end of his life is blind and is drawing cartoons. Uh -huh. Well, I actually, I would, I would, 
I would claim that I belonged in the best legs contest. I actually have. <laughs> I'm not the best looking guy in the world, but have have been complimented on my legs more than once. It's it's weird. Um, um, and since since I'm on a coast, it, this might be news to somebody. There is a kind of um, there's a Midwestern persona that's very useful to use, particularly in New York, which is just shy of the golly, the buildings are so tall thing, where I think people from the Midwest are expected to be not only non-hip, but several IQ points slower, and it can be extremely useful. People will people will reveal themselves to you in ways that they wouldn't to another East Coaster, and I think uh, a lot of these were complex because not only was I dealing with topics that I didn't know all that well, but I was also doing them for magazines and East Coast magazines. I'm not used to being edited very closely. I was very anxious, and I think there's a certain amount of construction of the kind of and it is. It's somewhat of an ironic pose because I'm bright and I'm a good writer and I'm I'm not. So it's not like I'm, you know, shaking the straw out of my hair as I'm going to these things. But well, there was this kind of extremely anxious, compulsive, agoraphobic person who, um, um, I, I guess part of it too is a lot of these. Uh, the danger of a lot of these seemed like they were set up to just sneer at stuff. You know, um, the East Coast guy returns home and sneers at the state fair the um the egghead goes on a cruise and sneers at you know the gross consumption and that that setting myself up as as sort of vulnerable and neurotic and inbent was a way to have at least a lot of the humor directed at myself rather than them i don't know if that makes any sense but that was the thing i was most concerned i didn't just want to do you know literate spy magazine parodies of things but the effect that is most visible here has something to do with the information gathering in the essays. The writing is presented as a kind of hunger. In fact, I think one of the book's funniest moments is when you have the historian of the Illinois State Fair give a whole set of very hard-to-remember facts that are recited dutifully in prose in the paragraph, and you say, I wish I had a pen. Um, there's a certain aggressiveness about the amount of information and how to parse it out, which is also true of Infinite Jest. The situating of the reader in Infinite Jest comes around a third of the way into the book when we find out what year we are in fact in, Uh what is past, what is present, what is future, and how do you take in new information Uh and arrange it seems to be part of your subject. See, this is this is one of the things that's neat about coming on the show is because you will point out stuff to me that I haven't realized. I I I know I know that with the non fiction book um, particularly the first few essays were extraordinarily stressful to me because, number one, you can't lie. Fact checkers call you up and they get very nervous. <laughs> number two, um, nonfiction is, is incredibly different because what's real is just, I mean, we could spend three hours describing the inside of this room, which is not very lavishly decorated, and I had a tremendously difficult time knowing what was important and what wasn't, and I was myself overwhelmed, and I, I did. It was a rhetorical strategy I hit on was simply to be utterly candid about it and invite the reader to kind of empathize both with my anxiety and with the overload. Um. Now, some of the overload effect takes the form, at least visually, spatially, reader consciousness-wise, of footnotes, having to go to the bottom of the page, the information not fitting on the page itself, and it began to make me think of something you say about television, that the television effect depends upon a splitting 
of the word, the image, and what you hear about the image. And that this seems to be a kind of tennis game that goes on in these footnotes as well. A whole resetting, actually, and the footnote form has become yours. You're using it now. It seems virtually for everyone. Well, you get no in the in the later essays, uh, which I wrote when I was typing Infinite Jest. I, I mean, the footnotes get, um, n- dare I say, addictive. Somehow, there's a certain way that um, a, a kind of call and response thing that's set up in your head. They're a terrific way um, to to sort of drop back. A dimension, or do a meta comment on the thing that you're on the thing that you're doing in the essays. Since since I decided there was no way I could pass myself off as a journalist, and was in fact going to do these <laughs> as kind of meta essays, and have part of the essay be about the anxiety of producing the essays, the footnotes were great places to do that. The way that the editor of the book helped me is that the footnotes can become for me very compulsive until I can. What ha- what will happen is there's a there's an anxiety that I haven't made something entirely clear or that, oh dear, an element of reality has escaped my ken. And so what I'll do is drop it down at the bottom of the page. And Peach, Michael Peach, the editor, pointed out to me that it seems a lo- about a third of the footnotes, particularly in the Lynch thing and in the Cruise thing, were cut out because he can nail when I have forgotten that the footnotes have to be read exactly the same way the text does. That to me, they become sort of corollaries or afterthoughts, but for the reader, actually, they're even more demanding because the reader has to stop, hold his or her place in the text, go down, you know, read the interpolation, and then return to the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reason why I've, why I was lucky, uh, Peach has been, Michael Peach was a really good editor of both these books, is that he was able, he gets it, and and he sees, he sees some of the virtues of the footnotes, but he was very good at figuring out where I had just kind of lost it, was ceasing to identify with the reader in any way, and was just kind of working out this weird kind of addictive quality that footnotes have. I, by the way, I'm in, I'm in cold turkey from footnotes. I don't, I'm not doing them anymore. Um, I wanted to talk to you about style. You are the inventor, as far as I know, of the compound conjunction. Paragraphs beginning, and but now. I've never seen them before, and I wanted to ask you about them. You do it ferociously, and so I assume not unconsciously. Well, uh, you're referring. I, um, what what I'm interested in more than style is just pace, and it's one reason why these tours are hard for me because I don't think my stuff's meant to be read out loud, and I get terrible breathing problems. It's like it's like the text revenge. Um, the, the, I just have a lot of friends, and I myself, when I get, um, you know, when somebody's talking and they get on a roll and um, they start talking faster and faster and they don't breathe, one of the things they'll do is have. Um, compound conjunctions because you're really you're you're wanting that sentence to serve a number of things. It, it's both a contrast and a continuation, and it's also an ex, you know an, an extrapolation. And it's um, it's simply it's it's a it's a, I think a little a little unconscious clue to the reader that he's more listening than reading now. Mm-hmm. That we're in a that we're in a, a speed. Um, um, we're, we're 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 at a pace now that's supposed to that's supposed to be far more sound and pace and breath than it is um, these these you know short contained sentences. Well, when I was in college, I knew a girl who, speaking so fast and furiously as she would, at the point where she would want to say you know like she would say you like. Yeah. And we used to write it on walls with spray paint. It was you know like a motto. Um, 
I, the other thing that's annoying is when people say like in speech, you know, I'm like 35 years old, there's never a comma. And I would always read the stuff where writers trying to be hip would have like, um, I'm comma like comma 35, which, the, which, which is just absolutely wrong. It makes it easier to read, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't make your brain voice mimic the sound of somebody actually saying it, which mm-hmm. is one reason why I guess when I'm when I'm writing stuff that's meant to be read very fast, there's not much punctuation, and there's a lot of stuff that's strictly speaking ungrammatical. Although the syntax is kind of strategic. Well, I'm glad you used the phrase because I was about to use it. And in fact, I thought I had invented it. That I would say that these things, at least these books that I know, are written in the brain voice. To an extent, I think. I don't know whether anybody else sees this. There's a real progression. I mean, the first two, the first two things in here were done before, be, before I wrote Infinite Jest. And Infinite Jest is the first thing that I wrote that where the narrator. It's supposed to sound like the narrator's talking to you. Mm-hmm. The first few pieces of fiction that I wrote were very what I thought was literary. They were very written and very kind of distant and contained and. Um, and I think as the essays in the book go on, they're in roughly chronological order. More and more of that voice kind of creeps in creeps into the voice of the essays. I'm not sure that it's entirely intentional. I'd be happy to pretend that it was if it would make me sound more impressive. (laughs) Well, what's nice, I guess, is that as impressive as these books are, there's also a countervening desire not to sound impressive. In other words, from time to time, in both places, the essayist who's writing a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again calls himself a weenie. The world of infinite jest is also full of people who are saying brilliant things to you and apologizing for saying them, apologizing for being the kind of people who think these things and think them at this rate and express them at this length. And that's what I mean, I guess, by the brain voice, that somehow or other there is that self-interrupting capacity. Everything that a writer does is not peculiar to a writer. It's something that he's located somewhere in the culture or in his head that finally put onto the page. People stop and say, yes, people do that. And your work seems to be the result of something that developed in America when everyone started going to college. They read things that their parents hadn't read, maybe not your parents, but mine, and suddenly all sorts of locutions entered speech that previously had only been on the page. For example? The inasmuch-as stuff, mm-hmm. meta-language, uh-huh. little bits of apologies for being smart, um, self... Or for looking as if you're trying to sound smart. Yes. Which is... For, for me, I find what you're saying flattering, um, but I, I think you're overestimating some of the... Re- like, this thing about the, the constant self-consciousness and apology. Um, somebody at the reading in San Francisco last night was very acute and made me very uncomfortable because she talked about the second essay in the book, which is, is this big thing about writing fiction when you've watched a lot of TV and you live in this kind of very hip, ironic culture and how hip irony can become toxic and blah, blah, blah. I won't rehash the argument. But she pointed out that, you know, this essay 
this essay makes that argument, and then a great deal of the rest of the essays in the book employ a certain kind of hip, ironic self-consciousness that is um, that to me isn't that attractive. And the apologizing for being smart, I think, can very easily become trying to head off potential criticism from you by acknowledging that I can get there first and deprecate myself so that you don't get a chance to do it. And it's it, it's very much of a piece with a certain kind of insecurity, what to me seems like a very American insecurity that I have fully internalized, um, where I'm so terrified of your judgment that if I can show some kind of hip, self-aware, self-conscious judgment of myself first, I somehow am defended against your ridiculing me or parodying me or something like that. Um, to the extent that I don't think I'm the only person who suffers from that, it may be effective, but a great deal of it, I think, is that's, that's expressive stuff that I'm not comfortable with. I think a lot of that's just a tick about my own psychology that I, I think my work would be better if there wasn't quite so much of that in there because it really is manipulative i mean it is a it is it is acting out of terror of another's judgment and trying and so trying to look as if he can't possibly come up with a criticism of you having to do with how you appear that you haven't gotten there first well one of my favorite things to talk to you about follows from this um we both share an admiration for a barely known book called wittgenstein's mistress by david markson which is published by donkey archive press the books by David Foster Wallace, a supposedly fun thing, I'll Never Do Again, and Infinite Chest are published by Little Brown. Nice of you to insert the, the plug. Vacant Science Mistress now, by the way, available in paperback for, I yes. think, only $8 from Dalkey Archive Press. But what we like about it is its mixture of extraordinary intelligence and, at the same time, sadness. And the intelligence in it is really swallowed by a narrative situation that wants to compress it and make it nearly impossible to express so that the book alternates between weeping really and extraordinary observation or both at the same time <clears throat> and we talked about that kind of book I, I, I say that Rilke and Kafka do it that manage to be extremely self-conscious and yet to attain some kind of sanctity or purity or holiness or humanness or all at the same time that I sense is the alternative to the massive book of infinite jest and the massive self-consciousnesses and paralysises that this kind of book involves. I wanted to talk about that a bit. I think, I mean, I mean, I agree with you, and I think Wittgenstein's Mistress is a magical book, um, not because it alternates between incredible intellectual stunt pilotry and pathos, but because it manages to marry the two in a way that, I mean, it, that's that's what my dream is to someday be able to do something like that. I think there's a difference though. Um, between the kind of self-consciousness that you're talking about of Wittgenstein's mistress or notebooks of, you know, Maltalurus Briggs or um, a hunger artist or the metamorphosis, the self-consciousness there is a far sort of deeper, wiser, it's a more autonomous, almost solipsistic self-consciousness. The kind that I'm talking about is far more concerned with 
the perception perception by others, um, what others' judgments are of you. It's a way of kind of positioning positioning oneself to prevent something terrible happening that only you think is going to happen or something. And it's um, it's it, I I think we need more words for self consciousness the way Eskimos have for snow because I think you're right. There are some kinds of self consciousness that are much. Um, it's more like self awareness or a kind of deep a very involved, sophisticated acceptance of human limitation versus I want to make a certain kind of impression. You know, I want to show you, number one, I'm very smart, but number two, I'm not pretentious at all and not hung up on myself. So I will therefore, every time I say something erudite, make very clear to you that I'm not all puffed up because if for a moment I show myself as puffed up, well, we know from watching American sitcoms what happens to the character who shows himself as puffed up or pretentious. I mean, the, the analogy is somewhat forced, but I think I think there are moments in some of my later stuff where I've managed to hit a note of that kind of self-consciousness that for me is is wise and timeless. But there's also there's also times when I know that that I get scared um, and I'm positioning myself a certain way, particularly in the nonfiction, that I don't I don't think that's interesting or productive self-consciousness. In a perverse way, though, I think it's far, I think it's mimetic of a very kind of late 20th century American experience, which is I think this is a time when we're terribly afraid of one another. Um, and there, don't, there, there seem to be very few venues for talking about it. Um, and so if betraying some of that neurosis in these essays is at least a way of inviting some kind of conversation between me and the reader about it, that's one thing. But I also know that that you know, I'm very bright, but I'm also terrified of coming off as somebody who thinks he's very bright, because people who think they're very bright are at, uh, buttholes. After around, what was it, 15 years of waiting for William H. Gass to finish the tunnel, I said to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if after all this time, during which time we know that he's been working like a dog, he published a book and it was 77 pages long. For me, that would have been extremely heroic. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it wouldn't have been one of those little tiny aperitif and toothpick kind of books. It would have been the exudation. It would have been the philosophical investigations is what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm very curious about that ability to heroically throw away what might be brilliant stand-up stuff, set pieces, wit, extravagance, and to have the essence. It seems to me that a lot of the questions that get asked in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, that is to say, how do you get out of the loop of addiction and consumerism and everything else, is to tell not the truth, but the essence of truth, to get past the process of truth-telling and go to the truth itself. It, it, I agree with 90% of what you're saying in principle. The problem is in practice, what you're talking about is a very condensed aphoristic, you're talking about thus spake the Zarathustra, or the philosophical investigations, or the Tao Te Ching, or something, or really, really good, um, really, really good poetry. And the problem with doing something like that, kind of in nonfiction, is that I think then you're setting yourself up as as a as a teacher, rather than as um, a companion. Um, and I think part of it, 
I agree. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And in fact, even though Infinite Jest is really long, the thing I'm most proud of is that for once I did not reptilianly fight and hang on to every single page that I did. And I let, I, I allowed myself to have faith in a really smart editor and cut some of it. And like that, that for me was what was valuable about that process. But I am not yet good and smart enough to be able to do what you're talking about. I agree. I agree with you about what would be magical about that. And I think one of the most toxic things about the movement called minimalism in the 1980s was that it aped the form of that without any of its spirit or any of what would truly be magical about it. Moments in Carver, maybe the end of So Much Water So Close to Home, but for, for the most part, it, it got Americanized. It got reduced to a set of formal shticks, an appearance, a persona. Um, for for now, given my limitations, at least like in the nonfiction book, I wanted much more to set myself up as the sort of companion um, with whom the reader could tell might be somewhat annoying, but was not going to BS the reader and was not going to adopt a certain kind of posture where I'm up here and the reader's down there or I'm up here and the other cruisers are down there um, and was going to be a kind of companion or tour guide who was very observant, but was also every bit as bound up and Americanized and self-conscious and insecure mm. as the reader. Mm-hmm. Now, I realize what I'm giving you is a literary defense for a kind of literature that is inferior to the kind you're talking about, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's without value. Well, no, it, you're very present, and I guess what I'm talking about is a literature that implicitly takes to heart the Zen maxim, live as if you were already dead. Oh, yeah. Well, you're talking about you're talking about an effaced narrator where it's not a literary choice, but it's in fact it's in fact a truth. And except for very rare transcendent pieces of fiction, um, I haven't seen that done anywhere except except spiritual and religious literature, um, or you know at the end of at the end of Wittgenstein's Tractatus. Yeah, you know, I mean you're talking about the sort of thing that an absolute genius, I mean, a Mozart of living comes up with after decades of effort. And I'm, I'm, comfortable, I'm, I'm comfortable saying I'm not there yet. I've been speaking to David Foster Wallace on the occasion of the publication of a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Thank you, David, for joining me. Thank you. <laughs> my associate <laughs> producer is Melinda Siegel. I'm now going to beat my head against the wall for 30 seconds. <laughs> the engineer today, you won't hear this, is Jennifer Swadek. I'm Michael Silverblatt. Join me again. No, he actually is. Stop. On Bookworm. <laughs> <laughs>